Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the RUF campus minister here at UNC. And if I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you at some point and get the chance to sit down with you and talk with you and just know something about your life and help you to understand something about what we're trying to do here at UNC. Um, I want to say especially if you're here and you know uh, that you're not a Christian or that you're not uh, you know, someone that would kind of resonate with a lot of things that we're singing about or talking about, but you in some way have made an effort to be here, I want to say especially welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, I know it's a strange thing for people to come together and sing together, to pray together, um, to listen to someone talk about the Bible and actually believe that it's true uh, in our culture. And I just want to say thank you for being here and welcome. Um, if you'd ever like to meet with me and talk with me about any of the things you hear here, or if you've got a gear to grind about Christianity, I'm more than willing to sit and uh, talk with you about that, listen to it. I've got, uh, I've been, I've not always been a Christian in my life, and so I've, I've got some old gears I could grind with you probably, could at least resonate with that. And um, if you know someone that isn't a Christian and that you would be interested in meeting with me, please let me know. I really do keep open hours in my schedule throughout the week to meet with people um, who want to meet and talk about these things, because I think that's part of what it means for me to be a pastor to y'all, and for me just to be a Christian in general in the world. And so, uh, moving on. We are in the book of Exodus this semester, which if you don't know anything about it, it's totally fine. It's the second book of the Bible, and it's the story of God taking the family of Abraham, which is in Genesis, and making them a people and setting them free in Egypt. That's literally all you need to know as you come through uh, and listen to these things. So, whoop. Drop that. Um, Let me read Exodus 3 and pray for us, and we'll get going here. This is God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I shall be remembered throughout all generations. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, you are I am. 
the one who doesn't need us, who didn't make the world because you were lonely, didn't redeem us because uh, you, were, you needed us. But Lord, you redeemed us and you made the world because you're good. Lord, let that goodness and that love pour out of you tonight. Be with us in your power and your presence through your spirit and for the sake of your son Jesus. His name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I'm, I'm not a golfer. Uh, I will go with you to Finley if you ever want to go drive some balls. But I'm not a golfer at all. I think it's, it takes a little bit too long. I never come back with all the golf balls that I started out with. It's just, it's horrible. Most of it is me just looking around in the, the water traps and trying to find new balls. But I do have a set of golf clubs. And so I'd like to tell you how I got these golf clubs. I got them, I guess, seven or eight years ago now in St. Louis when I was living there in seminary. And the way that I got them is I was driving home one day and I was pulling into my neighborhood and there was a bank at the pull into our neighborhood. And as I drove past the bank, I see on the curb, just lying there in plain sight, a golf bag full of golf clubs. And so I pull over to the side and I think to myself, this is someone's golf bag full of golf clubs. I'd better take it so that it doesn't get stolen. <laughs> Looking back is not the way that's supposed to work. <laughs> But I go into the bank that's right there on the corner, and I give them my phone number, my email, my name, and I say, hey, found these golf clubs out here. If someone comes looking, give them my, my information, and I'll give them back to them. And so a few days pass. I think a week passes. And I get a phone call on my phone, and I don't know the number, so I pick it up because I wasn't screening my voicemails at that point. And it is a man who is furious at me. And he just, he lays into me. He's dog cussing me on the phone. And when he kind of slows down with the rant, he, I kind of get out of him that, oh, I've got his golf clubs. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> and he, he starts to ask me, he's like, man, I work so hard. I work to get money to buy this thing, these golf clubs. What do you do? Do you even have a job? And I was like, well, man. I, I don't want to say it, I'm, an, I'm a student, and I didn't want to tell him that I was in seminary to become a pastor. And he, and he was like, really? What kind of student are you? And I was like, well, I'm in seminary to become a pastor. And at that point, he just goes on this long rant about Christians and how we're all hypocrites and how pastors are there to get money out of us and just to steal from people. And he's, he's furious, and he's just dog-cussing me, and I'm, I'm just taking there, meek, I'm sitting there meekly taking it and allowing him to do this because I've stolen his golf clubs. <laughs> and that seems like the right thing to do. <laughs> and so after a few minutes of just him just yelling at me, I'm like, hey, man, I would love to give these golf clubs back to you. Is there any way that we could get together and I could give you these golf clubs back? And he says, yeah, go to the bank parking lot, where you stole my golf clubs and wait for me. I'll be there and also bring $20 for my time. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that, but I'll bring your golf clubs. <laughs> and so I bring the golf clubs and I sit out there and I'm waiting. And I'm, st- I'm waiting one minute, two minutes, three minutes passes. And I'm starting to think about like all the profanity that man used and all the threats on my life that he said. And the time is going, and I'm just getting more and more anxious and worried, and 10 minutes pass, 15 minutes pass, 20 minutes pass, 25 minutes pass, and I'm just sitting in this parking lot on a Saturday morning waiting for this guy to show up. And then 
from around the corner, my roommate comes, and he's like, hey, Simon, come on in. Come on inside, man. Come on inside. And I go inside, relieved, and he brings me to his computer, and he plays for me the conversation that I had with that guy because the man on the phone was his old roommate from college. <laughs> and I had not stolen that man's golf clubs. It was just a prank phone call <laughs> because, because it was... Uh, April Fool's Day, and I totally forgot about that. <laughs> but to this day, if you ever want to go hit golf balls, I'll go with you with those, whoever's golf clubs those are. <laughs> I've still got them. <laughs> Y'all, uh, that was a hilarious prank and a completely unexpected phone call that I got. And in life, you're going to get crazy calls. That's right. This is my hard right turn from that story, okay? There's just a party that's been sitting on that story for literally years wanting to tell you all that. And now this is my opportunity. So <laughs> go with me. <laughs> but unexpected calls happen. <laughs> and when they do, how are we supposed to respond to those things? Look, we've heard before, uh, I think we've all used this sometimes, or at least someone has told this to us, that everything happens for a reason. And if you're here with us tonight, maybe the reason that you're here is because God is calling you in some way or calling you to himself. And so tonight, I really just want to ask two questions of this text. I want to ask, who are the people that God calls and who is the God that calls those people? Who are the people that God calls? Who is the God that calls those people? So who are the people that God calls? Moses. Take a look at him. He used to be a prince in Egypt. He had an incredibly comfortable life. And then he killed a guy. And he had to flee. And he's been living in exile as a shepherd for 40 years. He does not have an important, influential job. He does not have a comfortable life. He was a murderer. He probably felt like a loser. He's one guy, and God is calling him to himself to take a stand against the global superpower of the day. God is calling him to do great things. I think that our tendency is that we feel like we have to be extraordinary or special in order to get great things done. But it is not you that has to be extraordinary. It's God. No matter how ordinary you think you are, there are no forgotten C-list actors in God's kingdom. There are only people that God calls by name. It doesn't tell us here what Moses has been thinking or feeling since he had to flee from Egypt. But you get a sense from his conversation that he doesn't have a very high opinion of himself. I mean, he feels like a loser. We didn't read this tonight because it's like an ongoing conversation in the next two chapters. But the excuses that Moses gives for why he does not need to go do this thing that God's calling him to just ooze insecurity. These people aren't going to believe me. And so God gives him three signs. Throw down your staff, it's going to become a serpent. Pick it back up again, it goes back to being a staff. Not quite a lightsaber against an evil empire, but we'll take it. Put your hand in your cloak, and when you pull it back out, it's going to be leprous. Put it back in, it's going to be regular. Pour out water from the Nile in front of Pharaoh, and I'll turn it into blood. Well, those are cool, but I'm not an eloquent speaker. I made your mouth, I'm going to tell you what to say. Please send someone else. Like, he does not want to go on this. Look, y'all, there's a type of perfectionism that we can have that doesn't start things. Because if you don't ever start, then you can't ever fail. 
This is why it's so hard for some of us to start a paper, right? Or to apply for a really good internship. Because if you never start that thing, you never apply for that thing, you never get rejected. You never get that C. We want to have the perfect plan for success before we begin. But we're not called to serve a plan. We're called to serve God. And it's God's choice that makes us worthy. It's God's word and God's presence that gives us confidence. God starts with Moses with the promise that I will certainly be with you. And throughout the Bible, this is the non-negotiable for serving God. Joseph had it. Moses had it. Joshua will have it later on. When King Saul loses God's presence, he can't lead. When King David gets it, he instantly becomes the leader. It was Jesus' final promise to his disciples. It's Paul's confidence through his ministry that God is with his people. God does not give us a plan. God gives us himself. I mean, have you ever looked at the needs of the people around you and at the world and thought, it is just too much. Our country is too divided. People are either too greedy or too poor for anything to be done with this. My family is too broken. I'm too broken. I'm just not going to bother. Let me live my regular life like a regular person. Do you know what God says to that? Your name. Regular person. B student. Five foot ten, 160 pound man child. <laughs> Which is what many of us are. <laughs> Come here. I've got something I've got to tell you. Follow me. Get involved in the mess. God uses regular, imperfect people because there are no other people for him to use. But before God sends out Moses, what does he do? He brings him close. He shows him who he is. Like, even if you are the youth group all-star, valedictorian, president of your sorority, who maybe on the side this summer just happened to start a small biotech company and is planning to announce her run for the Senate in the spring, what people need more from you than just your outrageous gifts is your relationship with Jesus. Genuine love for God. Obedience that flows out of you instead of having to be squeezed out of you. Ministry that lasts over the long haul rather than flaming out. Those are the things that really help people. Racing from one thing to another to try to get a spiritual fix or always looking to start the next big flashy thing on campus that will be huge and exciting and will finally show the world how important you are is not that helpful to people. Change takes time. People are really slow. And one of the most significant things you can do with your life is to really be present with a few people and to love them well and to ask them, how can I serve you? That does not require a particularly special person. It requires a faithful person. A faithful person that knows a faithful God. Real mission will always meet real people where they're at and will go slow with them. And that is just so hard for us. And the way that the Lord helps us to enter into that sort of genuine mission is that he drives us to himself by showing us how weak we are, how much we actually need him. And y'all, this is everyone's experience. The Apostle Peter, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, said, Lord, everyone else will betray you. They will all deny you. I will die for you. I will never leave you. And Jesus' response was, really, Peter? Come on, man. The rooster isn't going to crow tonight before you deny me three times. 
And Jesus gets arrested, and Peter will not acknowledge to a soul that he knows him. And he's undone because he saw the reality of his heart, and it was really ugly. And he just had no idea that this was the real him. But God drew it out and showed it to him and showed him the way that he actually needed God to enter into mission. And you know the next thing Jesus showed Peter was? His love for him and his failure. Go to the end of John's gospel. Peter's fishing with his friends. Jesus shows up on the beach. Peter sees him, jumps in the water, and swims to him. And when he gets to the shore, Jesus is cooking breakfast for Peter. You only cook breakfast for people you love. And then he takes him on a walk on the beach, and he asks him, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. The order is first love, and then it's mission. And that's the way it goes for everybody. When God wants to do something great with you, He doesn't give you a home run plan. He brings you close to Him and He makes you feel like a little child. Beloved, cherished, taken care of, but also weak in yourself and confident in your Heavenly Father. Look, the Lord has a place where He trains Christians to do great things. And it's always in His presence. And that is just so hard for people like us. Because it can seem like the world is on fire. And we need to run out there and put it out. But the world and the church don't have the problems they have because too many people waited too long to ripen into wise, mature, thoughtful leaders who carefully exercise their leadership. That is not the issue. I mean, think about this. Moses is at least 50 years old before he gets called by God. Paul, if you read the book of Galatians is converted, and then he doesn't begin his ministry for like 15 years. Jesus is probably about 30 when he begins his ministry, and he's the son of God who can heal people and raise people from the dead. It takes time to mature. And often times God is calling us to himself and saying, just wait a little bit. Enter a community with people where you hear the gospel, where you're loved, where you pray together, come and be with me and grow and learn who you are, what your gifts are, who I am, how to listen to me, how to be obedient to me when it's hard, how to love me and love people when it's difficult. He's not in the same sort of hurry that we are. And where we start is by seeing that we need the same thing that the people that we want to serve need. Because the people who God calls are people who deeply need Jesus. Look, you have nothing to give that you haven't received. And so before you can go out and give, you have to learn the power and the love of Jesus. The reality is that there are no great Christians. Even the people that you and I would say are great Christians would not say that they're great. Do you know what they would say? They would say, there are no great Christians, there's only a great Christ. And then there are the people that he uses. I heard a story recently about a group of college uh, students who got together once a week to pray and read the Bible and hold one another accountable. And they were not just doing kind of churchy, bible things, but they were taking food to poor families, and they were visiting prisoners, and they taught orphans how to read. And it's like, wow, like Christians being Christians. Revolutionary, right? 
And they loved Jesus, and they loved other people. And other than that, they were just regular students who did their regular life, and there was nothing glamorous about it. Do you know what came from that? Well, this was about 250 years ago, and so we do know. It's called the, they were called the Holy Society, and what came from them was the evangelical revival of the English church and the first great awakening in America. If you know anything about American history, that's a big deal. The entire Methodist denomination... Like millions of people became Christians from a prayer group of college students on a college campus. It's the opposite of glamorous. And the reason is because God doesn't call us to mission. He calls us to God. And then he sends us out. So who is this God who calls? Who is the God who calls? Look, Moses' problem here is that he's so focused on himself. He's thinking so much about himself. All of his excuses begin with I. I don't have the power, I don't talk pretty, I don't want to do this thing. Our own ego is the biggest problem in listening to God's call. And so when Moses encounters God, what's the first thing that he sees? A sight that is meant to break down his ego. It is a bush on fire that does not burn out, which is weird and beautiful and strange. And Moses is like, okay, cool, I'll go check this thing out. But think about the image here, that just as this fire burns and doesn't need to consume the bush, but has life in itself, so God is self-sufficient and needs nothing outside of himself and does not need to draw life or love or nourishment from anything else. He didn't make us because he's lonely. But also think about this other side, that God gives life. He's the source of all that's true and beautiful and good. And so what God is showing Moses is that he's not someone to be trifled with. That God is not a book that you read and then you put down. He's not a show that you watch and occasionally quote with your friends. He's not a class that you take one semester and then wrap up at the end. But God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He's the reality that upholds all of the realities. We depend upon him. He doesn't depend on us. He's never disappointed or afraid or anxious or dismayed. But he upholds all things, rules over all things. But what do you make of this bush? Why is that there? Why not like a flame hovering in the air? Wouldn't that do what we want it to do? Think about the image. Bright, hot fire and then an old brown bush. One of those things is extraordinary. The other is so ordinary that you would pass it by and never think again about it. God is giving Moses a picture of what it's like for God to be with his people. That God's people are ordinary people who generally have nothing extraordinary about them. So normal, so every day you can meet them and forget about them. A shepherd in the wilderness, B students, average athletes, people who don't become the president of their sorority or fraternity, regular people like you and I, but in them dwells the vitality and the life and the love of the one true and living God. He's raiding upon them. He remembers them and senses what's hard about their life. And he's also holy. Look, he says, don't come near. Take the sandals off your feet for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. Look, any God that can make the world as complicated as our world is, is not like you and me. We're made to be with him and to be holy like him and we're not. And the reason that Christianity is not about moralism is because nothing in ourselves can be the basis of approaching God who's holy. And that's especially true about our morality. I mean, think about it like this. Say, I'm not like, encouraging this, but say, thought experiment here, 
someone were to come down here and just haul back and slap me in the face. Like, as hard as humanly possible, and just rattle my teeth around a good bit. What would be the consequences of that? You know, it'd be me, like, wiping tears out of my eyes and saying, like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You know, right? <laughs> like, very little consequences, right? What would be the consequences for slapping the chancellor of UNC? A lot more, right? Like, expelled from school, almost certainly. Uh, probably some minor jail time, something like that. What would be the consequences for slapping the President of the United States? Like, if you could even do it and get there before the Secret Service took you out. I mean, definitely jail time. Who knows what happens with the rest of your life? You know, like, you're gone. You're just gone. <laughs> Written off, right? <laughs> the consequences, as the person is important, go up and up and up, right? Not a big deal to slap this guy. Huge deal to slap the President. Look, when we talk about God, we're talking about a king that exists above time and space and matter. Angels worship him. He spoke and the world came into being. He's holy. When we sin, our sin is slapping God in the face. What do you think the consequences of that are? I mean, they're serious, right? And yet, God feels this and wants us to come close. He made us to be with him. And so he calls Moses and he sets the conditions of their contact. Take off your sandals. It's so easy. Anybody can do it. It's just taking your shoes off. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans, much later said, If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. That's it. That's it. Anybody can do it. People once asked Jesus, What do we need to do to do the works of God? Because he's not like us, they must be astronomically difficult to get in with them. Do you know what Jesus' response was? The work of God is to believe in the one whom God has sent. It's the simplest thing in the world, and it's the hardest thing in the world. I can do nothing but trust a God who's not like me to do for me what I can't do for myself? Yes. I am who I am. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which means God is holy and he dwells with sinners. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were a bunch of liars and cheaters. You all are all probably morally better people than they are. But they are people whom a holy God counted as his dearest friends. He's just not like us. Is that scary or is it good? Yes. It's both, right? And here's where it gets really good. At the start of this, start of verse 2 here, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So there's an angel that's in that bush, but then he turns aside and God calls to him out of the bush. So is it an angel that's there or is it God that's there? Yes. There's only one other being in the entire Bible who's distinct from God and yet is the same as God who speaks for God, reveals God's purposes and intentions, who doesn't drop his divinity or his holiness, but accommodates himself to sinners in order to be close to them, to walk with them, to care for them. Only one other being affirms God's wrath against sin and yet is the visible embodied experience of God's mercy, who sets the conditions for sinful people like us to be with God. I mean, do you think that Jesus just shows up out of the blue in the New Testament? 
It's not like all this stuff happens in the beginning of the Bible and then Jesus kind of wraps it up later. But he's God and has been God for all eternity. He's always been God with his people, longing for his people, defending his people, knowing what has been done to them in the land of slavery and vowing to bring them up out of the land of affliction. That in the incarnation, he just changes the way that he is with those people. He doesn't appear in fire but in flesh, not in strength but in weakness, not as an extraordinary person but an ordinary person like you and me. And for me, it would be so easy for us to get sidetracked and for me to say to you, now go and be like Moses. Go and get sent by God and do something big. And y'all are such gifted, sincerely passionate people, I know that you would try. But really what we need to do is to see the one whom God has sent. Who doesn't just give the law, but fulfills the law. So that a holy God can be with not holy people. Because our tendency is to say, let's go do something big. Let's do something really sold out and really impressive for God's kingdom where we really matter. Make a plan, stick to the plan, do your thing. But plans fail, and life is too complex to plan for everything. And when that happens, we look at the problems of the world and then look at ourselves and say, I am not enough. I can't do it. And you know what? That's exactly right. You're not enough. You can't do it. You can't solve the world's problems. But Jesus is enough. And Jesus can. If it feels like there's a need, but the need is greater than the resources you've got to bring to bear on it, then welcome. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of faith and hope and real love. You know, my hope for us is that we do attempt great things for God. Jesus' promise to his people is, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you're going to go out and you're going to march and hell's gates will break down before you. Let's go do that. Let's go do something about human trafficking. Let's go do something about hunger in the wealthiest country in the world. Let's go do something about DACA. Let's tell other unholy people how to be loved by a holy God. Let's burn with love and passion. But first, do you know what you need? You need to know the God who loves you. And burns with passion for you. And for people like us, it is just so counterintuitive that to do great things, you have to stop and be still. That true greatness in God's kingdom comes by sitting before the face of God and knowing Him. Like deep down in our bones, knowing Him. That for all of our fears and insecurities, there is simply no better cure. And from that, yeah, to work hard, really hard, on real problems in the real world. But that doesn't start with anything from inside of us. It starts with everything that's inside of him. His love, his peace, his patience, his mission is from him and becomes ours. But first it's his. And here's my challenge to you for people who want to do great things and do great things in God's kingdom. Look, we live in a world where there really is no like night and day differences anymore. Like you wake up, and there's work to be done, you end the day, and there's still work to be done. And light, dark, however the sun is going, you can turn on some lights, you can do more work. What if you started off your semester by winding the day down? And so, you know, the last half hour of the day, no screen time. No YouTube, no Instagram, no Snapchat, no email, no paper writing. And you just wound down and you let yourself get tired and you had a real rhythm to the day. And you set limits on yourself, and you said, I've got to sleep at a certain time. And you just spent some time at the end of that day reading a psalm 
and then read a chapter of the Gospel of Mark, the shortest gospel of the New Testament, and you prayed the prayers of God's people, and then you read about Jesus, God in the flesh, and you saw what God thinks about religious people who use religion for personal gain, and you saw what God says about money, and how God thought about doing great things in God's kingdom, and how God treats women, and you ended your day by saying, I want to know you. I want to see your face and sit in front of your face and to love you and to live in the love that you've promised to give to your people. And fill me with that love so I can love this campus and serve the people you put in my life in whatever way that you've given me, with whatever gifts you've given me. Do you know what? God loves to answer those kinds of prayers. He loves to show up in that and to make himself known to people who ask that. And so I'll end with this. I heard a story uh, not long ago. I'm kind of a history nerd, and so this is something I heard and kind of stuck with me. But on the night before William the Conqueror was supposed to invade Britain, he had all of his ships moored in the English Channel. He's got 8,000 men, 1,000 horses on boats. It's very brave heart. And they're all supposed to rendezvous at a certain place at a certain time off the coast of Britain, and there's no GPS, there's no radio, there's no cell phones, no nothing. These are just guys on a boat. And they go out, they launch from France, and you know, lo and behold, a fog rolls in, because it's the British Channel, and it becomes so dense and so heavy, you can't see anything out there. You can see nothing and no one and hear nothing out there. And the men who are on William's ship are terrified because they don't know where anyone else is. Maybe everybody got stranded or shipwrecked or you know, washed up on the beach, and it's just them, and they are terrified. You do not invade Britain with one ship. And so what William does is this. He calls all the men out, and he sets a great feast on the deck of the ship. And everyone sits down, and they eat, and they drink, and they tell good stories, and they sing songs, and they abide in the love of William the Conqueror. And he just bros out with them. And his confidence is so firm, and his love is so present, that the men are empowered And the next day, the sun breaks in, and the fog clears, and they look around, and it is just a forest of ship's masts bobbing in the English Channel with them. And they go, and they conquer Britain. Look, what you all need to do great things in God's kingdom is not just to rah, 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 and run and try try something huge. What you need is to sit and abide in the presence of Jesus, your King, and to be with Him, and to know his love for you, and to know his confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And to rest in that, and from there, to love the people in your life, and to move into the world with the confidence that God is at work through ordinary people in extraordinary ways. That's my offer to y'all, as always in the gospel. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your love for us, <laughs> that you take ordinary, regular people like you and me, these people that are here, and Lord, you make us new, and you forgive us for our sins, and you fill us with your love, and you send us out in the world to love the people that are here, and through that, you change the world.
God, help us to abide in that love. Help us to know that love. God, help us to rest in you and know that you're at work in us in small things that one day will turn into great things. And you name me pray. Amen. Thank you.